Hi, and welcome to In the Cosm. I'm your host, Canadian speculative fiction author, Kat Gordon. I've started this podcast so I can chat with authors and other creatives I simply fangirl over. I hope you enjoy diving into my microcosm and feel inspired to seek out the works of these amazing humans. Hi, I'm Kat Gordon, and today is such a big deal for me because I have with me the wonderfully talented Sue J. Sokol. Sue is a social rights activist and a writer of speculative, liminal, and interstitial fiction. Originally from Brooklyn, Sue now makes Montreal's her home. So her short fiction has appeared or is upcoming in The Future Fire, Spark, a creative anthology, TFFX 10th Anniversary Anthology, Glittership, an LGBTQ science fiction and fantasy podcast, Glittership, Year One Anthology, After the Orange, Ruin and Recovery, and Amazing Stories. Sue's debut novel, Cycling to Asylum, was long listed for the Sunburst Award for Excellence in Canadian Literature of the Fantastic and has been optioned for a feature-length film. Their second novel, Run J Run, was published by Renaissance Press and Sue's third novel entitled Z has just been released in both French and English by Mouton Noir Acadie. Welcome, Sue. Thank you, Kat. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is so exciting. It is so exciting. It's so exciting for me. Um, I was just, as I was putting this together, I was remembering when I first saw you I was with Talia at CanCon 2016 and you were on a writing critique panel and everything you said, we were like, that person's cool. That person's cool. We like that person. And uh, it's, just, it's just amazing how you could just see someone and have stars in your eyes. And then just through the magic of the publishing world, you become colleagues and friends. And I'm just so happy to have you here today. Thank you. Had I known you were thinking those thoughts, we could have become friends even sooner. <laughs> <laughs> I better get my thoughts out there because, you know, I am rather a shy <laughs> and demure type of person. Um, so here's the thing. You're working on Z. No, you've just released Z. And that's your new novel. And I'd like to know more about it because I haven't yet explored it, but I'm excited to. Could you please share with us about Z? Sure. Um, so Z is a story about a kid who could read the thoughts and feel the emotions of other people. And that sounds pretty cool and like something that would come in handy. But in fact, it's also something that's not so great at times. Um, and so the book is largely about the challenges of being such a person, because especially for a child growing up who's trying to find their own path, it's really hard to be burdened with everyone else's expectations and thoughts and ideas. And it makes it very confusing when you're trying to figure out who you are because you wanna, you wanna please everyone and you're confused. And, and so this is a big challenge for Z. So it's about um, kind of like the power and limits of empathy. Mm. And at the same time, it's a story about Z's family, um, the four adults who make up her family or who come to understand that they're a family because it takes, you know, a bunch of events before that happens too. So it's also about the four adults in Z's life. Um, this is actually, it's being marketed as a young adult um, novel, okay. although I didn't originally write it that way, but, um, and I'm curious to know what people think about that. I, I know that, uh, you know, adults have read it and, and liked it and, and, and I know some kids too, but um, it's interesting to me because I don't really, um, I, I, 
I think of it as both adult and young adult, but it's cool to be able to be, uh, you know, also writing for, um, for young adults as well. And, and um, so the idea of hyper empathy really appeals to me as an autistic person. Um, you know, there, a lot of times we're under the, the actual real life trope of not having empathy, but many of us are hyper empathetic. I wanted to know what inspired you to choose that theme for your protagonist? Hmm. I guess there are two things. One has to do with my daughter. Um, so when my daughter was small, I really did believe that she could read minds. Mm. It it, I just, I really believed it. And, and I thought, well, that would be interesting for a story. Um, but personally, I also, I have a little bit of an issue like Z has. I mean, I don't really read minds, I, I don't think, but um, I sometimes, I'm, I feel myself to be hyper aware of what other people are thinking um, and it makes me, um, it causes me some pain, actually. It's hard to deal with sometimes. I'm always thinking, oh, that person, they were just upset by what I said. What do I do? You right. know, and, and it gets me tied in knots. And, and, and you know, I, I might be wrong about think these things. Sometimes I'm right, but I just don't realize that it doesn't matter as much as I think it does. So I wanted to explore that a little bit, both as someone who experiences something like that, I think, sometimes. And yeah. just, you know, you know how science fiction just takes a thing and just runs away in crazy directions with it in, in unusual directions. So that's what I was trying to do. Well, I, I mean, I just, I just, now I'm like 3000 times more curious to read it um, because yeah, it's true. Like particularly if you're a compassionate person, right? Um, you know, kind of outward thinking, you can be sensitive to what other people think and to take that to the level that you're taking it to in this book and it to be a young person, the person is young as well, um, with all the things that growing up means, I could really see how that would be a, a challenge. Yeah, I mean, what a, you know, most kids just want to please the, the, the adults and their peers, like that's especially once you hit adolescence, it's all about that. Mm -hmm. and, and it just could be excruciating, you know. Um, and so yeah, I, uh, I just wanted to explore that, explore that a bit. Yeah. And, and it's in English and in French. That's kind of awesome. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, the, the publisher is a francophone, uh, you know, French language publisher, uh, Acadian publisher in New Brunswick. Um, it's a long story how it found its way there, but they were looking for kind of edgy um, young adult writing. And, um, and then they, they, they really liked it, but they're like, well, we need it to be in French. <laughs> So they hired a translator and they translated it. And that was, that in itself was a really, really interesting um, experience. Cause I do, I do speak French. I mean, not perfect, perfect. You know, I didn't really come to learn French well or at all kind of, I knew a little bit of French growing up but not until I immigrated. And then I went to the Francisation classes and tried to learn French. And, and so uh, it was interesting for me to read my words in French and see how you would do you know, how would you do the same thing? Is there, sometimes you have to really come about it from a different angle in French than you would in English. Right, and, with the idioms and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And expressions, yeah. Like different cultural reference points are different. You know, uh, there's a whole thing we had to figure out good, you know, non-binary um, mm. pronouns in French. And it's much more challenging French because there are so many opportunities to genderize language in French that you don't have in English. All that was was super interesting. It was, it was great working with this talented translator and 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 you know seeing what we could make out of it. 
even even the title Z is challenging for Canadians because you know I'm I'm from New York as as you said and Z is the last letter of the alphabet when you're an American but it isn't here it's Z so you've kind of yeah it's 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 interesting but I'm so glad you said that because <laughs> I almost made the joke <laughs> saying that your book is Z in the U.S. and Z in Canada. <laughs> so yeah, it's true. It's I I don't even know how. You know, I should know why it's Z, but I actually just don't. So whatever. <laughs> why is it Z? I mean, I don't know either. I think it's related to, to French. I mean, European. You know, French and English influence them each other a lot in Europe and. But then, you know, the U.S. did a bunch of things differently. Some of the some of the language differences between Canadian English and, and U.S. English have to do with it being um, more influenced by, you know, by England and also by French. Mm -hmm. So you now when was the official release of Z? When was that? That was 2020? Yeah, I guess it was. Um, no, I don't know. November or December. That's the very end of the year. Right. Um, so, so what's it like to release a novel during a global pandemic? I mean, you know, we're so used to going to, you know, um, readings and cons and different things. Like, what? How did you navigate that? Yeah, I was really worried about that. I have to be honest. Um, my mm. first two books, I really, my launches were such special moments. You know, surrounded by by friends and family and supporters, and and I, I didn't know how was I going to do a launch. I'd done readings on Zoom and it's just like, to me, it was like talking into a void. Right. It was really, really hard. I tried things like, well, what if we do gallery and I could look at everyone's faces, but they're so little. <laughs> I really see their expressions. And, and I, I was, I was, you know, I was upset. I didn't know what I was going to do about it. So um, I kept on thinking about, you know, how we drink wine and eat snacks at the launch. And so I came up with an idea. Uh, I'm very fortunate because I, I, I live in a, in a house in, in, um, with a porch, a covered mm. porch, which is not that usual in Montreal. Right. Um, and I had this idea that I could make mulled wine. It was going to be like cold out, of course, we're in Montreal, um, <laughs> and vegan chocolate chip muffins. And what I would do is I would invite people who, who felt comfortable to come to my porch. I would give them a glass of mulled wine and a muffin, and I would sign a book for them. And I would have people come one by one, and we'd wear masks, and we'd be outside, and it would be COVID safe. And, um, and then I could sort of replicate a little bit, at least that human, you know, face to face thing. And, and it worked out pretty well. Um, some people arrived at the same time as other people and I would either just wait in the garden or whatever. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. That's a pretty creative way to handle it really. It was, yeah, it was, it was great. It was really nice. And I actually finally had some mulled wine myself that night I did, that was the day of the English launch. I did the French launch on a Thursday and then I did the English launch on a Sunday. So mm -hmm. all day Sunday, I had people coming, but I was also thinking about my friends who couldn't or wouldn't or didn't feel like comfortable to come. And I knew they wanted the book and wanted a signed book and I, I wanted them to have it. So I came up with this other idea, which was that, um, I took a list of people in that situation and my partner and I biked all over Montreal Saturday oh. night delivering books. Um, and some people were in actual quarantine. So we did these contactless deliveries of the book and people right. sent e-payments. And so, you know, it made it feel, I've always had bicycles part of my launches ever since cycling to asylum. Very cool. I was really happy to be able to have uh, bicycling involved. And then the launch itself was, was very creative. So my publisher, they were great. They found this like um, this kind of a 
queer Acadian um, drag queen comedian <laughs> to animate the event and they were so sparkly and I was just <laughs> And we had, you know, we had readings and we had Q and A's and we had audience participation and book giveaways. And so it just made the event much more warm and there was an advantage. Uh, I had two launches, one in French, one in English, but there was an advantage to having the Zoom launch because usually I have a launch in Montreal and a launch in New York, and right. then hopefully also one in Toronto and Ottawa. Mm -hmm. um, but I could have everybody at the same launch this way. Mm. It wasn't a factor. And I actually had people from France and Germany oh who had to stay up really late, but had a few of them. And it just was like, wow, I couldn't have done that. In a, yeah. In a yeah. The reach is fantastic when you also have virtual, you know, it's making like, I, I mean, I'm an extrovert. I love being with people, but I'm half thinking that even when we come at the other end of this pandemic, virtual and in-person launches are not a bad thing because with the virtual, you can reach a wider audience like you say if some people feel like staying up or whatnot or you schedule it a certain way you could have people from Europe and and other places as well yeah and actually the first time I ever seen anything like that was with you when we when we had at glad day and, and right. virtually and I was like wow this is great <laughs> you know that was fantastic and glad day a bookshop is always going to have a warm place in my heart because of that accessibility that they offered me but I do know what you mean, though, because um, that was I had never done anything like that before. And it was before I even knew what really Zoom was much about. I had done a few things with Talia, but never like this. Yeah. And I couldn't even hear people laugh. And I'm trying to read yeah. things that are funny. And I'm going, please let them laugh. I hope they're laughing. But I think, you know, if we decide this as a whole in the publishing industry, we can continue the virtual component as well. I think it would be really good for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It's true, but we will have to find a solution to that problem because this really is a problem when you try to read and you're not getting the laughs and you're not getting the reaction. I saw a comedian, like a comedy show where like none of the laugh track, nothing's there. And it just feels, all the jokes feel like they're falling dead. So then I saw this other act where the person had their partner in the room mm -hmm. and was joking with their partner the whole time. And that made all the difference. Just to have one person in the room laughing was yeah. really great. Yeah. Um that's something I think, you know, I feel like I, you know, as a person who likes accessibility and accommodation, I got to figure that out. <laughs> Make that my mission. And I'll, I'll let you know if I learn anything and let me know if you learn anything as well. <laughs> okay. Um, that's amazing. Those are great ideas. And uh, I'm going to listen to this again to make sure that I write them down. Um, I, I want to go talk a little bit about some of your other works. Uh, the last book that I read from you was Run, J Run. And I, I even wrote in my notes that I could have done a whole hour podcast on Run, J Run. It, um, to me, it's, it's exquisitely written. Um, it explores mental illness and trauma and PTSD in, uh, in, a, in a way that I feel is non-harmful uh, in terms of tropes. Um, I also love that the support system is a polyamorous relationship and I, I just wanted to know, was it important to you to write that story, you know, you know, defying those kinds of harmful tropes and, and, you know, representing mental illness in a way that people who have mental illness can relate to and also showing, you know, polyamory without all those tropes and cliches. Were those two themes important to you to demonstrate in your work? Yeah. Hmm. Well, 
I mean, definitely they're important, but um, the way I come to decide to write a story um, is a character makes themselves known to me. And they know. <laughs> And then I want to learn more about them and, and they tell me things and I do research and, and, and things and they tell me things that happened to them. And then I start learning about the people in their life. And that's how I came to, to write this story. But then once writing it, um, like when I realized I had to, to deal with these issues because the person who came to me happened to have a serious mental illness and happened to be in a polyamorous relationship, I knew I would have to write about those things in a way that was, you know, that was good, that wasn't tropes and that wasn't misinformation and, um, and that was sensitive. So like, that was very important to me once, once the story made itself aware to me, right. I set out like, oh, I'm going to write a polyamorous love story with a person who had mental, it wasn't like that. It was, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it was very important. I mean, in writing about, for instance, so um, the character Zach, who is, who's the person in the story with the biggest mental health problem, who, but who is arguably the, um, the main character, although not the narrator, who's mm. Jay. I, I, you could go back and forth and who's the real main character of that story. But, um, but the first thing I wanted to just be really clear about is this, this sort of idea that someone's mental illness defines them. Mm -hmm. Like they are their mental illness. And, and, um, and so I, I thought it was really important to, to try to show that Zach is a person who's extremely interesting and complex and attractive and flawed. And some of these things have to do with his mental illness and some of these things don't. I mean, he's just right. like, like he would do these things that were very unusual. Like he was, he's a very unusual person and does unusual things. And some of the unusual things he does, I mean, they don't have anything to do with his mental health. He's just an unusual person. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just how it is. And, and, you know, there's, there's a moment in this story where, where Jay is talking to his psychiatrist and is like, you know, if there were this pill that Zach could take, that would make him like everybody else that would make him quote unquote normal. I wouldn't even want him to take it. Not that he would take it. Right, <laughs> but, right. Um, um, I just want him not to be suffering. I just want him not to be in pain. Like mm. that's what I want. Not that he changed to somebody else, you know? So that was an important thing for me to, to, to write about mental illness in that way. Um, and, you know, and I also, um, you know, there's this, you know, also Zach is, is, is from a marginalized community. So, and there are a lot of bad things that have happened to him, mm. but I didn't want this toxic trope of someone who's, who's marginalized, whose story ends in tragedy. Yes. It could easily have ended in tragedy. And I'm sorry if this is a little bit of a spoiler, but I wouldn't write a story like that. I couldn't, I couldn't break my own heart or yeah. <laughs> hearts. Exactly. Um, and, and so at the same time though, you have to avoid the trope of, and then we figured out what was the big trauma and then they were okay forever and everything was fine. And you know, like, no, 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 no. It doesn't work that way, you know? And I made it very clear, even in trying to offer like a happily ever after-ish story, that that doesn't mean that Zach is cured. Yes. That, you know, or anything like that, you know, just that, yeah. So those were the things that I was really trying to uh, avoid, you know, in writing about mental illness. Um, with the polyamory, I mean, I guess the biggest misconception when people think about polyamory that I'm, I'm familiar with is this idea of a dude with all these wives. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> right. And so I definitely wasn't, you know, so, you know, I create the, 
I write about a certain type of polyamory in this story and mm -hmm. there's so many types. Right. So this is like a stable triad, that's mm -hmm. MMF, male, male, female. And um, so that's gonna avoid the dude with a lot of wives problem. <laughs> that, that, um, that will do it right there. <laughs> yeah, um, but I also wanted it to be really clear that for the female character, Annie, that this isn't something she's been forced into, mm -hmm. the will that she's just going along with, but that it was something that, in fact, she's really pretty much behind it. But aside from that, how much emotional benefit she gets out of this, and and uh, and and she's the one who explains it to my main character, who's a bit, you know, hesitant. Um, because the other thing about polyamory is a lot of people thinking think of it as just promiscuity or. Yes you know, doesn't want to commit, mm -hmm. which is so the opposite of the story that I wrote. Um, and, um, but it's hard for Jay because he's an extremely loyal person and he doesn't necessarily, he has ways of thinking sometimes that he mm -hmm. needs to kind of break out of. And, and he had to learn that, you know, being in this relationship doesn't mean that you're not loyal or that you're not committing. And, um, and it could be healthy and ethical and the best kind of, in fact, at some point in the story, he says something like every child should have at least three parents. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I love the way it was done. There's just so much about that book that I love, um, but you know, all the things that you said that you were working hard to make sure you didn't misrepresent, in my opinion, you, you get like, you know, when the teacher used to put a big smiley face on your paper, <laughs> like uh, you, you did it so well. Um, and I, I, I like the, I like the thing that you said about, you know, you wanted to avoid this taking a pill, you know, and you say that Jay says, you know, that he wouldn't even want Zach to take a pill that would make him like everybody else. Again, that resonates me, with me. I'm someone who manages mental illness, but I'm also autistic. And my autism is what you see, like my humor, my quirkiness, all the little things that make up cat. That's my autism. It's how my brain is configured. It's your um, awesomeness. <laughs> oh, my awesome autumnness. Um, and but I, uh, but I deal with depression, and I don't like it. So <laughs> that's, you know, depression is something that I try to, uh, you know, I, I have, I have help for, I go to therapy and I, if it gets in my way and prevents me from thriving, well, we have to deal with that. But so I kind of like that kind of duality of, you know, there's a personality and, and their own personal neurodivergence, and then there's mental illness. So you want to always help people with the stuff that's harming them. And right. if something's not harming them, and that's just them being them, you just let them be, you know? Yeah. So I love that. Yeah. And, and I could have easily also created like his psychiatrist as being someone who's like a bad psychiatrist, right. and but she, she wasn't, she was highly intelligent and empathic and competent and yet she made mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, but what was critical is her willingness to listen to her patient and to his loved ones and to change her idea about, okay, maybe this other thing is going on and, and, and think outside the box. And that's what was, that's what made her so great as, as a psychiatrist. Oh no, it's, the book is so good. I just, yeah, I, I think I'm gonna read it again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the first book that I did buy from you was Cycling to Asylum. Um, and, and I remember I said something to you and you said, so many people said to you, like, are you a prophet? <laughs> the, the, the way that you wrote Cycling to Asylum and you wrote it before kind of the way things are today, um, that uh, you must have thought that was funny that, you know, you were talking about, you know, you, you're writing a character now who reads minds and such. 
Um, half of us were wondering if you could predict the future. Uh, would you like to talk about Cycling to Asylum for a little bit? Sure. I mean, um, so Cycling to Asylum, for, for people who don't know the story, is about uh, a couple of activists living in a near future kind of dystopian United States who find um, that they need to flee, that their lives are in danger and take their kids. And But the way they flee is kind of unusual because they, they bike across the border, posing as tourists. And then they make a claim for refugee status in Montreal and Quebec. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so, um, yeah, there's, people have said a lot of things about the book, predicting things like for instance, uh, there's a lot in the book that has to do with police violence and it came out right before Ferguson. Um, right. Yeah, but it was, you know, but it was something that was, you know, I continuously comes to different boiling points, you know, um, Black Lives Matter, different waves of that. And, and it's unfortunately a problem we haven't solved yet. Um, and it's something that like I've thought about a lot, you know, in my activism. And so it was something I was going to put into the story um, because it existed. And, you know, I think it's, it's no secret to, to people who read and write speculative fiction that most many authors are actually writing about the present when they're, when they seem to be writing about the future. And that's what I was doing. Um, Mm. So, and a lot of the things I knew I couldn't get away. There were a lot of very dystopian things about the United States that actually like existed and still exist. And I didn't think I could write a story that was just contemporary fiction where activists come to Canada and get ref, you know, try to get refugee status because no one would believe it. Right. People think, oh, you know, but it's a democracy. Everything's great, you know, but I live there and I know better. And, um, and so I said, well, I'll just make it science fiction to avoid the argument. But, um, you know, so like people, but it's true that people like just a couple of years after my book, so I, I came up with the idea in 2008, but I wasn't able to find space in my life to write it until 2011, 2012, and then it was published in 2014. Um, but then, you know, soon after that, people were sneaking across the border into Canada mm. um, by foot. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, but it's not the first time people have snuck into into Canada, you know, from the United States. There's a long history of that and different events happening. Um, but yeah, and then, but the only thing I always tell people to take credit for is like maybe a year or less than a year after cycling was published, Montreal declared itself a sanctuary city, which is something I had in the book. Right. Declaring itself a sanctuary city. So I'm like, okay, I'll take that. But sadly, the truth is that Montreal is not a sanctuary city. Mm. Um, and, and we have a way long, long way to go to, to become one. Um, and so I just hope we'll point seeds, you know, to, um, to work more on, on that issue, but, you know, yeah, so, so that's cycling and, and, um, I'm actually, I hope I could say this, but I'm working on a a sequel to cycling, um, (laughs) (laughs) that takes place three years after cycling ends. And, you know, I mean, uh, you, you mentioned I'm from New York, so, you know, our decision to come here was politically motivated. Mm. So it is related, you know, we weren't um, asylum seekers, but, um, but now I'm writing this um, sequel with the eyes of someone who's lived here for a while now and, and is a little bit more clear eyed. Um, mm. And so uh, again, I'm writing about contemporary problems, both in our country and in the United States and, and abroad and, and about the people who were trying to, um, to fight those problems and make the world a, a more just place. Um, but I'm just futurizing it and using cool technologies and made up countries and, and that kind of thing. 
That's very cool. Um, would, you know, I, I mean, I can't believe it. I say this every podcast. I can't believe we're starting to run out of time because I get so involved and I just want to hear everybody talk all day long. Um, but just thinking about, um, you know, cycling to asylum and such, you describe yourself as a social activist. Can you just quickly tell us, you know, like, do you feel like your writing is also part of that? And do you do other things related to social activism? Yes, um, I mean, yes to both. Um, mm -hmm. So, so in New York, I was, um, I was a, a, a like a, a legal services lawyer, a lawyer for tenants and tenant um, organizations, and housing organizations and fighting for, you know, decent, affordable housing for people mm -hmm. as a basic, you know, right. Yeah. And I do similar work here in, in Montreal, I work for a community organization. And we also write for, you know, work for the um, right to people to have a, a a decent income, access to, to health care, so on and so forth. We work with a lot of immigrants and refugees, but we work with everybody. Um, and so I feel like the work that I do is advocacy and activism. Um, yeah. And then I'm also just an activist in my life, you know, involved in a lot of different, different causes and against a lot of isms and phobias. Right, and, right. And I do see my writing as a form of activism too, because I'm trying to write about the things that I see and my ideas of what would, what would be a better world and what we need to, to get rid of. And, and I try to, you know, present it in that context. And in fact, when cycling came out, a lot of the events I had, I tried to combine with some sort of social justice issue, like, like um, rights, rights of immigrants or cycling environmentalism and yeah. stuff like that. Well, it's amazing. Um, just keep writing, keep doing everything that you do. Um, it's time for my final question, because this is my favorite one, because I, I get to learn new things about people. What is a fun fact about yourself? <laughs> a fun fact about myself. Okay. Um, I don't know if it's fun or not, but let me let me say this. So, so people who are familiar with my work probably get that I like sports. Mm -hmm. I enjoy cycling and know a lot about baseball and basketball and play both things. But I guess people maybe don't realize that I'm also into music. So a fun fact about me is that as a kid, I played piano, cello, and string bass. That's awesome. And many choirs. And in fact, I was in a children's choir that performed at Carnegie Hall. I have no idea if Canadian, Canadians know what Carnegie Hall is, yeah? Yes, we do. We do. do. Carnegie Hall, practice, practice, practice. Okay. Anyway, so yes, maybe that's a fun fact because it's less, maybe it's less obvious um, from, from my persona and my writing that that is a big thing in my life too, or has been for since I was little. Well, that's fantastic. You know what? I play electric bass guitar, so you can get your string bass. I'll play electric bass. I will do some kind of spinal tap with like too much <laughs> bass in it. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds like fun. That's great. That. Um, I have to say goodbye to you and I don't want to, but I do. Thank you so much for coming on uh, my little podcast. I really appreciate having you here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This was so much fun. Folks, you can learn more about Sue J. Sokol's books and how to connect with Sue by visiting their website, suejsokol.com. That's S-U-J-S-O-K-O-L.com. Transcripts for In the Cosm are available at catgordon.com. That's C-A-I-T gordon.com. Thanks for joining us. Take care and stay safe.